This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 49, Frankenstein Conquers the World. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. Just a few updates for you. The t-shirt is now out. I have a picture of the new Kaiju Vision t-shirt that has been made. It has the Tori Gate with the Kaiju behind it. Below that is a building with a doomsday clock on top of it. And it's only a few minutes from midnight on that clock. On the back with the logo is Get Your Sekizawa On, referencing the Godzilla and Tokusatsu screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa. On the sleeves is www.kaijuvision.com in white. The shirt is black, and the main color of the graphics is green. They are locally produced. Swoose right in to www.kindrevision.com to look at it, or you can also check out Patreon and see how to get one. It's easy. The second update I have is Kaiju Vision is now on Spotify. I really love how Spotify has connected with the podcasting world. I've had a Spotify account for years, and I've loved it. If you like watching YouTube, we have a YouTube channel too. Every episode has its own video. In this episode, I will be covering the 1965 film Frankenstein Conquers the World, or alternatively, Frankenstein vs. Baragon, or alternatively, Frankenstein vs. the Subterranean Monster. The related topic for this episode is Ryuchi Shimoda v. The State, which is a court case involving the victims of atomic bombings, which directly ties into this movie. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's unique, audience-focused method to arm the listeners with the facts. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Baragon is a force of nature awakened possibly by human activity disturbing the Earth. He is a four-legged subterranean kaiju and has the ability to fire a heat ray from his mouth. He can quickly dig and tunnel into the ground. He is more of an animal than an intelligent character. He comes out of the ground to consume livestock and people, leaving destruction in his wake. Frankenstein is a result of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, stimulating the regrowth of Frankenstein's eternally beating heart. He eventually grows into a giant. He has human-like emotions, though they are primitive in nature. He does not act in a hostile manner unless threatened. Dr. James Bowen is an American doctor who cares for patients exposed to radiation from the atomic bombings. Besides his interest to help the bombing victims, he wants to study, understand, and assist Frankenstein. His colleague, Dr. Sueko Togami, also sympathizes with Frankenstein and his situation, and she becomes his caretaker. Dr. Yuzo Kawaji has his own ideas for how to handle Frankenstein, and he ultimately treats Frankenstein as a scientific experiment. Kawai was present when Frankenstein's heart was initially delivered to Japan. He also saw Baragon when he began his attacks. The human and kaiju plots are separate from each other for much of the movie. The connection between the two plots is Mr. Kawai, who ties them together by informing the scientists that Baragon is causing the destruction that Frankenstein is blamed for. 
Both Baragon and Frankenstein are problems. Dr. Bowen and Dr. Togami take Frankenstein to their lab for observation, but he grows too big and has to be put in a cell. Once he grows too big to be contained, he goes into hiding. The scientists can only help by bringing him food and defending him in the press. The JSDF fires weapons at him, but they are ineffective. Baragon is elusive by nature due to his underground travel. There are no plans for how to solve that problem. Both problems are solved when Frankenstein and Baragon encounter each other and fight. Frankenstein breaks Baragon's neck, killing him. Possibly because of Baragon's underground burrowing, the ground under Frankenstein caves in and he is also killed. In an alternate ending, after Frankenstein kills Baragon, a giant octopus appears and pulls Frankenstein into a lake, drowning him. The film is based on characters from Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, with a story by Ruben Berkovich, a synopsis by Jerry Soule, and a screenplay by Takeshi Kimura. The story is moderately complex, with some subplot activity, mainly involving the dilemma the scientists face regarding what to do with Frankenstein. The budget of the film is unknown. The film was a co-production between Toho and UPA, United Productions of America, which is the animation studio arm of AIP, American International Pictures. It was the first of three Japanese-American co-productions, the others being Invasion of Astro Monster, also from 1965, and War of the Gargantuas from 1966. The effects, directed by Eiji Tsuburaya, mostly look good, especially the models and artificial sets. The forest fire sequence is also impressive. Frankenstein's appearance was based on the 1931 Frankenstein film. Despite the effects looking fine, there are plenty of 1960s American B-movie moments. Some of Akira Ikufube's soundtrack from Varan was used. There is considerable repetition in music cues overall. It was filmed in Tohoscope with monaural sound. The tone of the movie is moderately dark. The film is really out there in a 60s kind of way, but the events in it are treated seriously by the characters. The scenes in the human plot involving Frankenstein can come off as either goofy or exploitative to the audience. With a 20 meter tall Frankenstein that grew out of a heart that eternally beats on its own, it's a fantasy film. The film is experimental in that it features a new kind of giant in Toho movies, Frankenstein, and because this was the first co-production between Japanese and American companies. However, just having Frankenstein in this movie is not experimental because this character had been well established in many movies and other media by 1965. Frankenstein Conquers the World is an expansion of style for tokusatsu and kaiju movies because it features a kaijin, Frankenstein, as well as a kaiju, Baragon. The film is a significant departure from what had been released at the time. The idea for the film had evolved over a period of time, but the movie's purpose was to feature two internationally recognized names together, Frankenstein and Godzilla, which resulted in a script but no movie. Eventually, the film became Frankenstein vs. Baragon. Both Toho and Henry Saperstein had been interested over the years with making a film involving Frankenstein. This is the second monster movie made by Toho featuring a character from American movies, the other being King Kong vs. Godzilla. It was meant to be an entertaining sci-fi horror film, mainly for younger men who the American producers centered on as their primary audience. The film was released on August 8, 1965 in Japan. It was not particularly successful, making 93 million yen, or 1,460,000 present-day dollars at the box office. It has a rating of 5.0 on that movie database, with 1,526 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. 
The film is moderately well-known by the fanbase, but was surpassed in popularity by the sequel loosely based on it, War of the Gargantuas, one year later. The film was released in the United States on July 8, 1966 by American International Pictures. It was also not particularly successful. The original 90-minute film was cut down to 87 minutes for the English-language version. The dubbing for the English-language version was done by Titra Sound Studios. Small parts of the scene featuring the bombing of Hiroshima were cut from the English-language version to lessen the impact on the non-Japanese audience. Two scenes with Frankenstein destroying buildings were added, which made Frankenstein a less sympathetic figure and more like a monster. The alternate ending featuring the giant octopus is retained in the Japanese international version. Henry Samperstein, who had ordered the filming of the scene after production had wrapped, decided he didn't like it. The Japanese theatrical version and the English-language theatrical version both have the original ending featuring the ground caving in. There are a few forces at play. Godzilla and this incarnation of Frankenstein were created by nuclear weapons, making both twisted results of man's scientific overreach. Frankenstein and Godzilla are themselves victims of nuclear weapons. Their existence is a challenge to the human world. There is conflict between Dr. Kawaji and the other two doctors about how to handle Frankenstein. The former wants to treat Frankenstein like a freakish laboratory experiment, while the latter treat him more humanely. Frankenstein is blamed for the destructive actions of Baragon, creating conflict between humans over how innocent Frankenstein is. There is a strong anti-nuclear sentiment in the film, mostly in the first half. Frankenstein is an innocent creature who just wants to be away from humans who mean him harm. One message is that humanity is more monstrous than Frankenstein is. In this movie, Frankenstein represents the misunderstood outcast who humanity judges hastily and out of ignorance. At the ending of the movie, it is decided that Frankenstein didn't belong or fit into the world as it is today. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I first encountered this film a couple of years ago when I was looking at other films to do down the road after the Godzilla movies were done. The first time I saw this film, I wasn't really sure what to think about it. I knew I had to watch it a couple more times to get the full experience. This really isn't one of my favorites. However, the sequel to this, War of the Gargantuas, is wonderful. I love it. I don't really dislike this movie either, but the thing is, it's really not one of the first Blu-rays or DVDs that I really reach for when I am interested in a tokusatsu film. In the previous episode on Dogora, I mentioned how post-1964, the movies get rougher. The later 1960s meant smaller budgets. This period also saw Toho collaborating with American production companies to get some more money to produce kaiju movies. There's not just a kaiju in this movie, there's a kaijin. He becomes a daikaijin later in the movie when the giantism and everything kicks in. Related to the background of how this movie ended up being what it is, I could spend 10 minutes on that, but I'm not. The big idea that I got out of this, though, was that Godzilla vs. Frankenstein was one of the original proposals. That seemed too implausible, so eventually we got Baragon instead. The implausibility factor in this movie is uh, considerable. I would never judge any of these movies based on plausibility, as fantastical elements are always in kaiju movies to, uh, to one degree or another. But this movie is pretty out there. It's out there in a late 60s kind of way, 
weird for the sake of weird, in some ways for money, and because people were getting bored more easily. We'll see this kind of thing in entertainment, especially from this point on. And that brings me to AIP, American International Pictures, and UPA, United Productions of America, which distributed Toho Films in the United States. AIP released movies that listeners might remember from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Roger Corman films were released by AIP. Some of my favorite MST3K movies are from AIP. The She-Creature. The Screaming Skull. Oh my gosh. I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Terror from the Year 5000. The Brain That Wouldn't Die. And many more. Lots of cult movies, exploitation movies, teenage interest movies. AIP used these newfangled things called focus groups. They got teenagers and said, what do you want to see? And that's why you got the movies that AIP made a lot of the time. Samuel Z. Arkoff, who was a producer at AIP, had the Arkoff formula that he made to create successful low-budget movies. He made his last name into an acronym, so it was Arkoff. Action, Revolution, Killing, Oratory, Fantasy, and Fornication. So in other words, excitement, controversy, violence, notable speeches, fantasy, and sex appeal. The marketing people at AIP also had the Peter Pan Syndrome strategy, and this is four parts. A. A younger child will watch anything an older child will watch. B. An older child will not watch anything a younger child will watch. C. A girl will watch anything a boy will watch. And D. A boy will not watch anything a girl will watch. Therefore, to catch your greatest audience, you zero in on the 19-year-old male. AIP was responsible for the genre of beach party movies. They also made quite a few motorcycle gang movies. Later in the 1960s, AIP created a bunch of hippie-related movies. Exploitative in nature, of course. I've seen a few of the various types of genre films that AIP has done over the years. AIP did do some movies that got a big box office appeal and got some awards, too. The Amityville Horror from 1979 is a good example. A few stars started with AIP, too, including Robert De Niro. It's in this new world of marketing to teenagers that this co-production was made in. And this goes into the changing audience of kaiju movies, too, because we're, they're zeroing in on people who are the most likely kaiju fans. In episode 12 about Ebira Horror of the Deep, the related topic is actually the changing audience for kaiju movies. So you might want to check that out, too. But now... As with Invasion of Astro Monster and with War of the Gargantuas, the other two co-productions that were done with AIP like this, these movies changed to younger people and kids and teenagers so that the movies are playing more to that market. In the same year as this movie was released, the first Gamera movie was released. Gamera would go on to market to and have a huge child audience. I don't want to comment as to how this Peter Pan Syndrome marketing technique and the Arkoff formula fare over time, opinion-wise. The cynic in me says studios still do this today, but I'm not in the movie marketing business. 
So when AIP asked their 19-year-old male focus group what they wanted to see, they said Godzilla versus Frankenstein, I guess. But no, Toho was interested in Frankenstein for a long time, too, and this was the era where Dracula and Frankenstein and werewolves and all this stuff were a big phenomenon. I was a teenage werewolf. That's just <laughs> right there, and that's AIP, too. Precisely the big three were Dracula, Frankenstein, werewolves. And you can see this in movies that were made back then. Each one is based on a novel, which werewolves are from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, it's a teenage-savvy, corny 60s movie part of the time, and the rest of the time it's a more out-there-than-average Ishiro Honda movie. There are a lot of premises this movie makes about why things happen the way they do, and we're supposed to just go with it, and I, I'm fine with that, I really don't care. It's totally crazy, but that's the kooky universe that this story takes place in. Honda, apparently, wanted to examine the ethics of this story more, and he wanted to go into that part, and I'm not surprised at all to hear that. It's just that, a lot of the time, the second half of the movie especially, is the monster fight part, and other concerns are totally subservient. I want to address the issue of Takeshi Kimura having the pseudonym Karo Mabuchi. It was with this movie that he started doing that, and he thought that his script for Matango was his best work, and I would be inclined to agree. But anyway, he chose Karo as the name because it was gender ambiguous. I don't think it's as bad as when somebody in the United States uses the name Alan Smithy, but it's still a pseudonym. This was his way of communicating that he didn't think this or the other movies he did after this were serious enough work, and this was just work for hire. My initial reaction was that he could be a supercilious writer, but given that this is the movie that started him doing this, he may have a point. Because this movie is kind of silly. I mean, here I am saying 1964 was when, possibly when classic movies died, so who am I to criticize Takeshi Kimura for saying everything after 1964 was just work for hire that didn't deserve to have his real name on it. He did the same pseudonym for all the rest of the kaiju movies that he wrote for. There's not much difference between this type of targeted marketing of young people in this and what was done in Ebira Horror of the Deep. That movie had a young cast for the most part, it had a fun 60s soundtrack, there was a dance competition at the beginning of the movie. But the marketing of this changed and the audience changed. That's the main point. Switching gears to Frankenstein's monster, or Frankenstein as they're saying in this, watching him on the set with the miniatures is a different experience than watching a man in a kaiju suit on the same set. It's because you're looking at a real person in the presence of all this artificiality. With Godzilla, with Kiryu, and even with the two gargantuas that we have in the next movie, there is more continuity of that artificiality. With this, not so much. It's not as glaring as if somebody from the crew walked onto the set, but it's just not the same. It's a human with giantism, and makeup, and green-colored contact lenses. I guess it's the Frankenstein factor here that puts it over the edge into sort of gimmicky, I guess? It is an irresistible title, I'll give it that. I believe some of the rationale for having Frankenstein in the kaiju movies is easy to predict because effectively he has the regenerative power of a kaiju like Godzilla, and then he was affected by nuclear weapons the same way as Godzilla, and then he became a giant. The single beating heart starts growing into a body, 
so it echoes Godzilla's creation in a way because of common creation by nuclear weapons. And they both have the same immunity to radiation. In the Godzilla movie, Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All Out Attack, or GMK, Godzilla has the same exact immortal heart. There, at the bottom of the ocean, at the end, the beating heart is at the end, just like what Frankenstein has in the beginning of this movie. At the beginning of the movie, the heart is taken from the German scientist Dr. Riesendorf, and the actor who plays him looks like William Devane. The Nazis decide to take the heart to Japan for research because Nazi Germany is losing the war. So yes, the Axis alliance between Nazi Germany and Japan is recognized in this movie. There's really not as much to this alliance, though, because one, they were really far apart from each other. Two, the Nazis expected Japan to attack the Soviets, but that didn't happen. And three, the Nazis expected Japan to give up the Jews living in Japan, but that didn't happen. Towards the end of the war, the only way the two countries were able to move supplies or anything else to each other was by submarines, which that is accurately depicted in the movie. One of the main things Nazi Germany and Japan did in their alliance was to hide war crimes from each other's respective public. Japan hid the Holocaust from the Japanese public, and Germany hid stuff like Nanking from the German public. With all this research going on uh, for the war, there is a possible reference to the Japanese chemical and biological research that was done at Unit 731, because the heart is taken to this lab for development of making soldiers more invincible on the battlefield. In episode 4 about the War Crimes Tribunal, I mentioned Unit 731 and how that whole thing was kept secret from the tribunal. I find the atomic bombing aspect of the story way more interesting than the reference to the Nazi-Germany-Japanese uh, Empire alliance. There is a difference between the English-language version of this movie and the Japanese version of this movie about the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. In the English version, it just happens, and in the Japanese version, it gives more weight. This movie was released just two days after the 20th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, so this movie gets to claim notoriety for depicting the bombing in this way. The notoriety is increased, considered that this was the first genuine co-production between Toho and American Production Company. This movie was released four months before Invasion of Astro Monster, and almost a year before War of the Gargantuas. This was a very early depiction of the atomic bombing, to be sure. It definitely has an atmospheric impact on the audience. The discussion of people affected by the atomic bombing is also a heavy dose of reality at the beginning. Dr. Bowen is about to quit his job at the start of the story. And of course, that's the way science works. There were a lot of medical advancements made from studying the victims of atomic bombings. The depiction of the relationship between Dr. Bowen and the Japanese characters is pretty accurate. At the beginning, we have Dr. Bowen working to save people affected by the war. They're all working together against incredible odds, helping the victims of the bombings. Dr. Bowen says how we must strive for a peaceful future together. And that strikes a hopeful tone. The thing I find odd about all this deep content at the beginning is that by the second half of the movie, it's a very different movie. We lose the serious aspects and it just becomes an exploitation film. The beginning of the movie is quite Honda-esque, but we lose that thread eventually. So there's this serious stuff at the beginning, but it doesn't really follow through on that. Obviously, Honda wanted to follow through on it, but he wasn't allowed to. We also lose a lot of the tragic aspects of Frankenstein's death, too, by the end. It's kind of just an ending, where they say Frankenstein wasn't meant for this world, the end. 
It's not tragic in the sense that Godzilla 1954 was tragic. Not that I expected that, but something in between would have been nice. I feel like this movie wasn't meant for this world that we live in today, because it's such a 1960s creation. It's like one of those movies where you just had to have been there. I feel the same way about King Kong Escapes, actually. Now to Nick Adams as Dr. Bowen. I'm not a huge Nick Adams fan. I don't dislike him either, though. I do think he makes a more convincing astronaut than a research scientist at a, you know, hospital. Regarding the dubbing, it's done in the same way as the other two co-productions, Invasion of Astro Monster with Nick Adams and War of the Gargantuas with Russ Tamblin. The English language version has all of the Japanese actors dubbed, and then the American's normal voice is retained. In the Japanese version, the American is dubbed, and we hear the real voices of the Japanese characters. What they should have just done was just film it the way that they did it, because that's how they did it. They just had everybody speaking their own language. And then, create subtitles around that. But, this movie was heavily advertised to younger audiences, and so dubbing was inevitable. That's just the way it worked. I do like the way Godzilla Final Wars and other movies like it have done. Just film it like it is. Have everyone speak their own language. I like Nick Adams' dubbed Japanese voice, though. It, it actually doesn't sound all that silly. The English dubbing definitely shows its age, though. The Asian-sounding English accents are not appealing. While I'm on the subject of dubbing and sound, did anyone else watch the English-language version and the sound would do that slow speed ramping up to normal speed action? It's cheap. It shows lack of care. The research scientist at the beginning, played by Takashi Shimura, he says lives could be saved because they could learn how to grow any part of the human body. That's what he says in the English version. In the subtitles for the Japanese version, Takashi Shimura says how he wants to make soldiers almost never die from being shot. So the intent of this research is actually different in the English language version. The other thing the English language version does is it omits some of the inferno footage when Hiroshima is bombed. There's not a very long take of the mushroom cloud either, and there's no date that's flashed on the screen. It seems like this part of the content is just sped up and that there are a few cuts made. So just like in Godzilla 1985 and Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956, the stuff with the politics and nuclear weapons is edited. The Hibakusha are people in Japan who were exposed to radiation from the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Since 2011, the term includes victims of the disaster of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, among others. I'm going to save the rest of the info on the Hibakusha for the related topic, but Frankenstein's monster is a stand-in for the Hibakusha, and in this case, in, it's in Hiroshima too. And this feral child running around and eating dogs and rabbits and the like. The man chasing him says there were lots of them just after the war, quote-unquote. At the beginning of the kaiju plot, Baragon destroys the oil extraction operation. Now, the common character between the human and the kaiju plots is the one played by Yoshio Tsuchiya, who is Mr. Kawaii. He was in the Japanese military, and he was the one who was with Takashi Shimura's character when he opened up this trunk that contained Frankenstein's heart. And he's the one who sees Baragon. There's a rock music motif going through this whole movie. Something bad always happens when they're playing this music. The subtitles have Dr. Bowen saying that Frankenstein has blue eyes, too. And I'm like, no, he doesn't. He has green eyes. Anyway, 
Mr. Kawai, when he's recollecting his story about seeing Frankenstein's heart, he says how the scientists wanted to make soldiers who could survive bullet wounds. Then they decide to visit with the German scientist. And this scene was funny. Is there any reason why he's wearing, like, faintly purple makeup? I don't know, I'm just wondering. That meeting is where we get the brilliant suggestion to cut off an arm or a leg and see if it grows back. And I guess the rationale is that he's minus one arm or a leg, but at least you know the answer to the question you wanted to find out an answer to. Sort of a classic ends-justify-the-means kind of thinking. Dr. Kawaji clearly agrees that that's what should happen. Kumi Mizuno's character, Dr. Togami, calls out Kawaji on his hypocrisy when he says that Frankenstein isn't a human anyway. She says how he told higher-ups that Frankenstein should not be sent to a zoo, but now he says Frankenstein isn't human. The movie does wrestle with scientific ethics, mainly through Dr. Kawaji's wrong-headed and kind of inhuman thinking. The audience is likely quick to side with Dr. Togami in these kinds of arguments. The question of, is he a human being or not? And I think more people would side with me. Yeah, sure. Then, Dr. Kawaji goes and not only ditches the other two at the dinner, he betrays them and instead attempts to go forward with cutting off limbs. I think it's funny that he needs a drink before he has to do this. It's just great touch with that. Then there's our King Kong moment. Bright lights are what sets off the rampage. It's after this that the movie almost becomes a different movie completely. There's another King Kong moment later, when he's outside the window of her room and he interacts with her. I have to say, the scenes with Frankenstein in them make me feel low-key uncomfortable. I think it's the exploitative nature of this movie and how Frankenstein is portrayed tragically but then just messed around with. After some more plot, including the hand being discovered, the authorities assume the wrong thing, and suddenly there's an added dynamic in this movie. The police think that the wrong man, or monster, or whatever, did it. Suddenly, it's like one-fourth of all the Hitchcock movies ever made, and Kimura's writing a wrong man plot. The authorities are wrong, they're incompetent, and they're always blaming the wrong man for all these crimes. This is something that Kimura does quite often. So Frankenstein is blamed for everything Baragon's doing. The moment at the castle with the bones, that cracks me up. The two women walk up on the bones of what appears to be a steer or an ox. It looks like those bones in Warner Brothers cartoons. Welcome to Dry Gulch, Population Zero. So he ate like the eyes and the brains and everything? Like, that's disgusting. In the Japanese version, the two women are yelling, help. But in the English language version, one woman says, he's eaten the... And then the scene is cut. And I'm like, he's eaten the what? Eaten the what? That's bizarre. It's followed by a scene where our two male scientists say that Frankenstein must be killed if he is the one that did this. And if he is, they have the hand anyway. <laughs> you know, just grow him again. Then there's the second rock music-related scene with the boat, and this echoes a similar scene in the original Godzilla. Another scene that gets mentioned a lot is the one with the fake horse. Tuburai put it in there to be funny. The boar is the first one, though, and that got similar responses. I guess it's really their call on whether to put fake or real animals into this. For some reason, I don't see real ones working any better, at least in this. Frankenstein 
is on an artificial set, artificial trees. Do you then cut to footage of real animals, which have real surroundings around them? It would be like a cutaway, and then it would bring us, you know, in and out of the artificiality. Then the third rock music moment is yet another dancing event at some party. Just like all these other rock music moments, something violent happens. Baragon destroys the place. It's a satisfying scene overall, I don't know why. You have to enjoy what little footage there is of Baragon in this movie. In standard incompetent fashion, the police blame the disadvantaged, misunderstood monster instead of figuring out something came out from underground. The other Baragon moment is all too brief when we see the glowing horn that's on his head. Then Baragon is raiding the farms, and we all go from real chickens to fake horse to fake this and fake that, and then we go back into real sometimes. American audiences would not have responded to a real horse getting stomped on. I do know that. Tsuburaya made the right move there. The model of the devastation is really nice. There's lots of detail. I really like the miniatures on that set. Does anyone else notice how the locations change in this movie, like, a lot? Like, more than usual kaiju movies, it just feels like that. It really covers a lot of ground. Some of the little scenes last only, a, like, a few seconds, like 10, 15 seconds before they go to someplace else. The self-defense force shoots at Frankenstein because they think he destroyed this village, and thankfully Mr. Kawaii comes by and connects his end of the plot with the Frankenstein plot and he says there is a kaiju at work. This changes the minds of at least two of our three scientists who realize that Frankenstein must not be killed. Dr. Kawaji, not so much as he has uh, questionable ethics. The scene let at the museum with Nobuo Nakamura is good. I like seeing him in anything. His part in this movie is actually skeptical museum chief. He disagrees about the possibility of something like Baragon existing. Dr. Kawaji is an odd character. I don't think Tado Takashima looks like a villain very much. Is he the villain? Is he the closest thing to a villain in this movie? He's good when he doesn't play parts like this, but he's been in quite a few Godzilla movies, including Atragon and King Kong vs. Godzilla, among others. His character is really unlikable, though. He rationalizes that Frankenstein is going to be killed anyway, so he's going to blind him with these explosives, I guess, and then get the flesh and the heart back after, you know, this Frankenstein's been dismembered from explosions. It's the character that's missing something here. It's not the actor, but it's just, it doesn't seem to work. Thankfully, Baragon shows up, and so does Frankenstein. The sum total of that scene is that Frankenstein saves Dr. Kawaji, the man who was treating him like a science project. Baragon has always been one of my favorites, mainly because of his other appearances. This is a good Baragon appearance, but this movie is often overlooked. I like GMK's presentation of him the most. There's this idea played around with that Baragon doesn't like the land being messed with. I've read this somewhere, I don't remember where. And it's because he first shows up at an oil extraction facility, and the other possibility is that he's just against interfering with the earth and that caused him to appear i'm not sure if there's a subtext to all of what baragon's doing the monster fight is okay what i like more is the huge fire that looks so incredible 
a lot of it is a back projection that's behind them when they're fighting. Nonetheless, it does look great. Then we get to the endings. As I've said in part one, the international Japanese version retains the octopus while the Japanese theatrical version and the English language version have the ground caving in. It was Henry Saperstein who wanted the octopus. Toho had to build a new set and bring the actors back for this new work. Mount Fuji isn't the place to find an octopus. Whatever, I don't really care, but the premise is just so strange. But the other thing is, an octopus is not the easiest life form to make a puppet of and then be able to move it around so it looks real realistic and convincing. It takes a lot of strings and a lot of hassle, and it ends up looking not very natural when all is said and done. They created this alternate ending, and then Saperstein said that he didn't like it. So, oh well. But if you have the DVD that has that ending, check it out. I like the sinkhole or ground collapse or whatever it is more than I like the octopus. Either way, Frankenstein is a monster, and he's not meant for this world. Yada, yada, yada. A natural disaster is a fitting way to end it all, rather than let the inhumane humans continue to treat him like a science experiment and then destroy him with weapons or whatever. Speaking of science, Dr. Kawaji represents the more extravagant and inhumane kind of science that was practiced during World War II. I wonder if this story is saying that there is still plenty of this type around and to be vigilant for them. In the book, Frankenstein, it's an extravagant aristocracy that irresponsibly creates monsters in this ethics-free, ends-justify-the-means experiment. The novel that Mary Shelley wrote is titled Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, here, Frankenstein is Victor Frankenstein, not the monster. So, Victor Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus. Human Prometheus represents human overreaching and the quest for knowledge through science. So, Victor Frankenstein, by creating the monster, is a modern-day Prometheus. Instead of giving humanity fire, he creates artificial life, which is one of the biggest instances of scientific overreach ever in literature. Does this movie really struggle with the meaning of all of this? Not a whole lot, no. But it does show that Frankenstein is more human than a lot of the humans are. And we can possibly draw the conclusion that he's not the one who's the monster, anyway. That concludes part two, and I'll move on to our related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. Ryuichi Shimoda v. The State is the topic. Now, this has a direct connection to this movie because this was the lawsuit that had to do with reparations for the victims of the atomic bombings. First, I'm going to talk more about the Hibakusha. It literally means person affected by nuclear exposure. Any victims of the atomic bombings, nuclear testing, depleted uranium weapons, or nuclear plant accidents like at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The largest portion of atomic bombing survivors are from Hiroshima City, about 30%, and then 15% from Hiroshima Prefecture, 18% from Nagasaki City, 8.5% from Nagasaki Prefecture, and 28% from other prefectures. There are about 495,000 hibakusha, over 300,000 in Hiroshima and 180,000 in Nagasaki. Those are the most current figures I was able to find. 
In order to qualify for the relief law for the hibakusha in Japan, you have to fall into at least one of the following categories. If they were in a few kilometer range of the bomb blast, within two kilometers of the hypocenter within a two-week period, exposed to radioactive fallout, or be carried by a pregnant woman who falls in one of those categories, or if they were relief workers or people who disposed of the dead. The hibakusha are their own subclass. They receive government money monthly, and they receive free health care. The support law reads, to provide at the responsibility of the national government comprehensive support, including health care, medical care, and welfare for the aging population of atomic bomb survivors, and to ensure that the national government never forgets the inestimable sacrifice made by those who perished as a result of the atomic bombings. They receive supplementary nursing allowances, home care service, counseling services, cancer screenings. Also, Japan gives some coverage to atomic bombing victims who live abroad. These include the children of first-generation immigrants from Japan to the U.S. who were in Japan at the time of the bombings. There were about 165 Japanese people who experienced both atomic bombings. They, of course, are also covered under the relief laws. And I cannot imagine being in their shoes or anyone else that this happened to. The word for people who experienced both bombings is Niju Hibakusha. The Hibakusha are one of the groups in Japanese society who are discriminated against. One thing I learned when researching this topic is that the descendants of Hibakusha have no birth defects. If someone had asked me if there were or weren't birth defects in that population, I would have said maybe, I don't know. But that's the point, though. It's assumed that there's something long-term wrong with something, because it's radiation we're talking about. It's sort of something you might assume if you didn't know. They're discriminated against in marriage and employment. Their children are also lumped into this group and are also discriminated against. It's definitely a serious social stigma. All through this show, when I decided what topics to pair with these movies, I noticed that topics of discriminated peoples in Japan are referenced quite a bit in these kaiju and tokusatsu movies. In previous episodes, I've covered the Hisabetsu Baraku and the Ainu people. The Okinawans, and by that extension the Ryukyuan people, have also been referenced in kaiju films, particularly the first Mechagodzilla movie, and I covered that. There are a sizable portion of the Hibakusha who are anti-nuclear activists, too. That's a no-brainer, of course. That's the background on this particular subgroup of people, and now it leads me to Ryuichi Shimoda v. The State. This lawsuit was brought initially in 1955, one year after the original Godzilla movie was released, and it was not decided until 1963. Five people brought this lawsuit to court in Japan, and they went to district court. Initially, the idea was to bring the legal action within the U.S. legal system, and there was a lot of argument against that even in Japan. The mayor of Hiroshima did not support that idea. The international law that governs the conduct of war was the Hague Convention of 1907. The lawsuit said that the dropping of the atomic bombs was illegal according to the Hague Convention. I'm going to skip the part where the district court examined the legality of the atomic bombings themselves, and I'm just going to say that it was because of the indiscriminate nature of the bombings that they were considered illegal. The part about the reason why they didn't receive any compensation is more important. Also to clarify, the reason why the defendants sued Japan for damages is because they could not sue the U.S. government. 
This is because of Article 19A of the Treaty of San Francisco, the peace treaty signed in 1951 between Japan and the Allied powers. That part of the treaty states, Japan waives all claims of Japan and its nationals against the Allied powers and their nationals arising out of the war or out of actions taken because of the existence of a state of war, and waives all claims arising from the presence, operations, or actions of forces or authorities of any of the Allied powers in Japanese territory prior to the coming into force of the present treaty. So the plaintiffs sued Japan, because it was Japan that waived the right to seek damages of any kind from the U.S. So they were suing Japan because it was Japan's fault that the plaintiffs can't sue the U.S. government. This was the most interesting aspect of this court case to me, because they're suing their own government for the damages that they incurred from actions carried out by the United States. The court found that though the first use of atomic weapons violated international law, the plaintiffs don't have the right to claim damages based on any citable international law, and they don't have the right to claim damages because Japan waived the right to do so in the Treaty of San Francisco. They cited Article 19A, which I read just now. So, for better or for worse, and I believe better, Japan and the U.S. set aside their claims to war crimes both ways in the Treaty of San Francisco. Why was this put into the treaty? To put the issue to bed so that it doesn't continue to be argued about for all eternity. There's no talk about who's liable for this and who's liable for that. This was a total war that we were engaged in. And the good thing here is that this isn't a big deal to Japan and the U.S. anymore. Japan and the U.S. have a special relationship that we've moved forward with for decades. That friendship has grown and thrived on deep trust and common values that our two countries share. Prime Minister Abe said, Ours is an alliance of hope that will lead us into the future. This special friendship shows the real power of reconciliation. The triple disaster in March of 2011 showed just how resilient that friendship is when the U.S. contributed greatly to Japan at a time that was one of Japan's darkest hours. It was only last year when the third movie in the anime trilogy was released, Godzilla the Planet Eater. And that had a whole small scene there between two main characters, Haruo and Metfiz, inside the plane, dropping one of the atomic bombs. Regardless of what you may think about the anime movies, I think that part's pretty good. It's intense. It keeps the historical event in our minds, just like this movie did. Anyway, this court case and why it didn't win was a good topic to choose for this episode because of how Frankenstein's monster is a stand-in for the Hibakusha and because of the references to the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, obviously. And since this court case was decided not long before this movie was released, it made sense to choose this topic. Regarding economic figures of note, in Japan in 1965, GDP growth was 5.81%. The Japanese economic miracle is still going on, although we're going to get to a little bit of a stall in a few more years in 1970. This episode is dedicated to tokusatsu writer Takeshi Kimura. His script for Matango is really good, and he made a huge impact on the Showa-era tokusatsu movies. The next episode of this podcast will be 1966's War of the Gargantuas. I absolutely love this one. It's a fan favorite, and it's one of my personal favorites, too. 
this is an instance where the sequel is definitely better than the original, in my opinion. And it is the third Japanese-American co-production. The next episode is a milestone. It will be the 50th episode of Kaiju Vision Radio, which is so incredible. So many episodes, so many scenic videos, so many great movies covered and reviewed, and so much writing. Thanks to everyone for listening, and especially for donating, to keep the show going. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Sean Stiff and William Mize. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Sean donated at the Kaiju Visionary level, and William donated at the Kaiju Commander level. Donating is worth it. You get the inside track to what's going on in the show, and you get to message me personally. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.